Hello and welcome to the Everything Delivery Podcast. This episode is Digital Pulse for the week ending the 23rd of June 2023. Digital Pulse is our fortnightly newscast where we highlight some of the interesting things that have happened in the tech sector. This episode is sponsored by Nearform. Nearform has over 10 years experience in remote delivery, empowering clients to succeed in a digital world through application modernization, data, design, DevOps, and product. You can find out more at nearform.com. I'm Dan Close, and as ever, I'm here with my co-host, Luca Lanciani. So Luca, over to you. You're going to give us a bit of an update on how we're running the podcast, right? Yes. Hello, everyone. And I don't know if you followed us on the previous episode of Digital Pools, but this is the second episode of Digital Pools. And we realized that we were releasing the Digital Pools on the same feed of everything delivery. This makes two formats and it may not be ideal for everyone. So what we decided to do is to create a second podcast on Spotify for Digital Pools. So now if you go to every, to our website, that is everything.delivery, you see it open here, right? Again, in this format, if you're following us on YouTube, you will see that there is a uh, there is a browser that is always visible, right? And that's what I'm pointing at. If you're listening to us uh, on Spotify, you probably don't see the, the, uh, the browser, um, even if Spotify now supports video. But the idea is that I'm showing the Everything Delivery website on the Everything Delivery website, you're going to find the link to the digital pools that is everything.delivery slash digital pools. On this page, we're always going to post the latest episode of digital pools, or you can find the links to Spotify or to a YouTube playlist that only contains episodes from digital pools. But uh, what are we going to discuss today? We're going to discuss three main topics. As usual, you will see that there are three groups. We have back to office or back to the office. We have ways of working and we have data and ML. And as usual, that ML is not for me. It's going to be for Dan. <laughs> so uh, probably a little bit of background before we start. Me and Dan, we bought work from uh, for a remote company. We work for Neoform. So what you're going to hear from us in here, it may be a little bit biased, right? <laughs> the fact that we've been working remotely. I personally been working remotely for the past eight years uh, for Neoform. And a little bit before that, also six months before that, I was already working remotely. I don't know about you, Dan. So uh, I started remote work pretty much at the start of the pandemic um, for the company I was at then. And then, yeah, since joining Neoform, I've remained remote apart from the uh, infrequent visits to uh, a local spaces space. Okay, so we clear the air, the air on the fact that we may have some bias there, but let's start from the back to office, shall we? Yeah, let's go. Look who's there again. <laughs> so for the one that is listening, we're talking about David, uh, DHH, right? The uh, One of the founders of 37 Signals now, uh, before known as Basecamp. Basecamp is one of their products, or Hey, the, the email uh, provider, if you don't know, if you probably know the, the products, uh, that released a new um, blog post on June 8th about hybrid combines the worst of office and remote work. I mean, it's an interesting take, right? Um, having having spent most of my life being entirely in an office, um, I don't particularly hate it. I don't miss the commute. And remote work obviously has its pros and cons a, as well. So. What was the what was the gist from David? What was he really kind of getting at with this one? So first of all, it started from a series of uh, news that were released uh, in the last probably months or so, and we're going to go through the new, those news, right? So this blog post is, was triggered by those news, where many many companies are now inviting people, and I'm our coding inviting right people to get back to the <laughs> office or to go back to an hybrid approach like the usual three days in the office to two days remote or flexible as they say right but what the change says that compromising the two things and going back to this hybrid approach is actually worse than going full back to the office and going full remote because you're now have to work in two different ways right so it goes yep. through the uh the fact that obviously if you go back to the office it means that you cannot hire across the country anymore you have to hire close to the office otherwise or, or globally right you're, you're you're stuck in a 50 mile radius of say london in my case yes so you're stuck to that and also the, you now go back to having either meeting in person or remote right and 
is actually pointing out that a long commute can be crashing, right? So commute is not good, but it's twice as bad if it's in service of the, sorry. And then he goes into the fact that a long commute is, uh, is bad, but it, of course it's worse if you couple that with Zoom uh, fatigue. Be why? Because you can go to the office, but you're still gonna have people working remotely. So there's this thing, like you, you have to force everyone to come in on exactly the same day of the week, or there's always gonna be that one person who has to dial in, at which point, yes, as you say, there's gonna be some amount of uh, it defeats the displeasure, point, right? It defeats the point of yeah, being in the office. But also one thing that I really, um, I mean, agree on is that you're gonna have these, again, mix of asynchronous and real time throughout the week. And you're gonna have split brains. You're gonna have people that are not write down the, that are not gonna write down the information because they share this information on the water cooler or in the uh, on the cafeteria. And so there you go you really lose the benefit of having all the information written down. Actually, it ends on something like hybrids is a cop out, commit to the office or commit to remote, right? So DHH is actually telling you either go full back to the office. Please don't do that. Please don't. <laughs> or or uh, go for stay remote, right? Remain remote. Yeah, I mean, I, I do I do love the way he, he finishes with a don't fiddle uh, this Machiavellian middle. Um, that's wonderful. I think the other thing that he kind of alludes to as well is that um, this is this three day a week thing is, is largely a compromise, right? So the idea here is middle management can convince you at the start, it's only three days a week. You've still got your freedom of your remote work. But his hypothesis is that this is this is, yeah, this is just to dull the urge to revolt, you will eventually be broken down into pieces and you will turn up into the office. That, that, it's, that's it's, an interesting. it's an interesting take. Yeah, it's an interesting take. I don't particularly subscribe to these. I don't... It's very think, cynical. Yes, I don't think that is the, the end goal, right? I'm not that cynical myself. That's why I didn't mention that. But I mean, it was good for you to bring it up. So now, <laughs> let's go over the different news that uh, DHH also links in these. Uh, yeah, so what were the triggers the for his By the way, uh, his if you want to see the post, those are going to be in the show notes right everything dot delivery you will find the episode with all the posts the, the links to those uh posts that we are presenting now so the first one is about meta and uh, meta is ask office workers to return to in-person work ask ask um it's interesting because okay usual thing right there is a there is the, the ask from september to get back to the office if i remember directing there correctly yes september 5th mm -hmm. uh and he's returned to the office three days a week um, but then they go down and they point out that in a blog post or an internal company uh, analysis show that engineers who join men in person perform better on average than those who join remotely. But requires further study, right? <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> but right after... We're not going to show you our working. We're just going to say this just to, to just to kind of like give, give some sort of signal that we've actually got some numbers to back this. There's some science behind it. But not good enough that we're going to share with you. Yeah, right? so if, if you're watching these again, we highlighted right after that that this requires for the study, right? So we're going to leave the, the link to this internal study that uh, Zuckerberg uh, shared. You can read it if you want. We're not going to go through these ourselves, right? It's too much in depth. Yeah. Uh, the second one was the farmers insurance workers that, I mean, there is a quite, I don't know if it's clickbaity, but they actually said this, right? There's actually someone posted this in internal uh, social network where one worker said, I sold my house because you told me that we were going remote, right? And this is about how those decisions impact people's life. Um, I understand that you think, or that a manager may think that working from the office is better for his company, or may think, or it may have evidence, right? Again, I don't have all the information, so it may have evidence of these, but going back on the steps may bigly impact people's life. In five years, we said that the, uh, the someone shared the internal media platform and posted a message filled with angry and crying emoji. Uh, this is according to Wall Street Journal, by the way, right? We're not, we're not saying hey, this. Yes. Right? So, and the, the message goes like, I sold my house, actually in quotes, so I sold my house and moved closer to my grandkids. So, yeah. It, I mean, it's not, it's not unique to 
to the this particular company as well, right? So we're seeing the similar sort of things repeated in the press. Uh, you know, people leaving London and then being summoned back and having sold their houses, and it's it's an interesting take. And and I do I do like that they uh, so this was at the farmers' office, farmers insurance group. They turn around and say they've made some kind of compassionate compromises around this as well, right? Yes, they, they 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 actually say not compromises, but they say something like, "However, we have so, approached this with great deal of thoughtfulness, including giving employees three months advance notice, so they had they have time to adjust and make arrangements." Mm -hmm. So very easy to move your kids to a new school in three months, yes. right? Or or again, buy back your house because that guy sold oh, the house. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. How easy is to find a new process. house with, cost free. Yeah, in three months and move back? Again, I understand companies that do this, but be mindful, right? Actually, we saw we saw that there was um, a wave of rage quitting because of this, right? Mm. Workers yes. didn't accept this. They actually said, you know what? I'm going to quit. I'm not going to do this. Um, so there's also something else that you want to be mindful of, right? If you want to retain your workers, you may want to approach this the right way. Or you just try and, you know, subvert all of the unions. And, and make sure your staff can't hey, careful there uh, careful there <laughs> so ne next up is the washington post uh, with mm -hmm. two field offices google issues ultimatum while salesforce tries charity uh, i quite like this one yes well let's see what they mean by tries charity right because uh, for a moment when i read the title i thought salesforce was using offices to i don't know uh, yeah, house charities. Yeah, house charities, right? To yeah. give to homeless free people, space, free computers, or maybe homeless people yeah. to sleep in their offices. Who knows, right? I didn't get the charity. I think, I think that's. I think that's called Twitter. <laughs> there you go. Really want to go controversial on this episode. So okay, <laughs> so they start from Google, right? Where uh, yeah. for over a year, Google has asked workers to come back in in three days a week, and they offered food and other perks. Uh, but now the company is getting serious and it's like, okay. On Wednesday, the company told workers that they must comply, right, with the three days requirement or their non-attendance could show up on their performance reviews. Interesting. Right now, they're getting, they're, they're telling people, get back. Um, yeah, get back or get fired. Yes. And then there is a point here that really caught my ass, right? And they, they mentioned the pandemic is over. Let's forget yeah. that for a second, right? I don't want to discuss if the pandemic is over or not. But it looks like that the only reason why we're working remotely is the pandemic. That started this remote working. But why are we considering the end of the pandemic as a trigger to go back? Shall we evaluate the benefit of the remote working and not just say, okay, pandemic is over, get back to office? I mean, I agree, right? But this, is, this, this starts to then fall into the same sort of territory as the four-day working week. You know where there's plenty of evidence to, to suggest that people are more productive with a four-day working week and and we've been experimenting with this and we the european union um has been experimenting with this for quite a long time and there are good statistics to show that it is it's it's a benefit but we're still after i don't know how many years struggling to kind of make these things happen but um, see that it's the, the difference that i see there is that we we haven't got to do four days a week all over the world, right? While we have got to do remote for two years. So we're already there. We've done it, right? Yeah, and we've got some good numbers to suggest that people are more productive, happier. Obviously, right, it's not it's not a binary. There are going to be some people who prefer to be in an office. There are going to be some people who prefer to work from home. And, and to the to comment about hiring work, there are going to be some people that do want to do both. Yes. It's about having options. We, we discussed this before we started the podcast, right? Not everyone is able to do remote work for many, many reasons, right? Maybe you don't have space at home. Uh, maybe we, we, you live in a small apartment. Maybe you live with your kids and your family. So, I mean, working from home may be detrimental for you. Uh, maybe you need to get out. Maybe your personality is the type of personality that needs to get out and have a space for work. And maybe there are problems with also this, right? Not everyone can do it because it requires more discipline. But discipline to work and to stop working. Stop working, yeah. So, that, but again, this is, this is what the discussion I want to have, right? I want to have the discussion about pros and cons of remote working. I don't subscribe to the idea that the pandemic is over. It doesn't mean anything, yeah. right? It doesn't mean anything. It's like if the excuse of working remotely is over, so now get back. Yeah, and that's that's what it feels like. And I, th I think that's why it's, it's eliciting quite a strong response. And we're seeing that a lot of people, despite these kind of requirements, 
I think you've got it highlighted here as well, right? So office occupancy remains stubbornly stuck below 50% of pre-pandemic levels. Yes. Big corporations, including Disney, Starbucks, and TNT, have mandated that worker returns to office. But even with that, we are below 50% occupancy, right, of the uh, yeah. offices. So, yeah. Now let's go to the part where Salesforce is actually doing charity. You want to take this yeah. one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is quite cool. So, and, and as you say, very unexpected, right? So in a way, to, like a very positive, slightly positive way, Salesforce are trying to encourage folks to return to office by giving $10 uh, to local charities for every day that you go into the office. So you're doing something very positive, potentially, just by showing up for work. Um, but this is, this is um, from what, June 23rd, uh, they started doing this, reported by Fortune. Um, I, I, I think it's a lovely idea. Yes, um, it's, it's 10 so, days, so let's, let's be clear, right? What this is there, comes into the office from June 12th to June 23rd. Okay. So you have yeah. 10, 11 days to get to the office and get this charity. So is this is this to make people try to go back to the office and see if they like it? I think it is. It's a, it's a feel-good way as well, right? So do something positive, come back, see if, see if you can cope with coming back to the office again. It's a good, it's a good incentive. Um, now, whether or not they've turned around and said, well, after this, after the 23rd, if you don't come back in, you're going to be pipped, that's something <laughs> else. But, uh... And again, the, the link, the, the Washington Post has a very long post. We're not going to go through all of it. We just wanted to align those two different approaches, right? Mandating and offering incentive. And next up is uh, Amazon. Remote workers are protesting and Amazon is like, eh. We don't care. Eh. You're replaceable. You're just a number. You said that. They didn't say that, right? But <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's it's interesting, right? Because it's like uh, a worker says that this is going to impact not just her, but the, the family. And I'm, I'm the first evidence of this, right? Working remotely has given me the possibility to see my daughters grow up, right? I with them, the moment I walk out of the office, I'm with my family. People now were getting used to this, right? Everyone tasted this opportunity. And again, if in this is not for everyone, I'm not saying that this is the only truth, right? Let's be clear. But there are people that really enjoyed, right, these. And the fact that they didn't have to spend hours or on their lives in traffic or stuck in an office building. Yeah, three hours of a commuter day that I can now spend with my kids. It's, I think that's a huge win. Yes. And also, uh, on this article, I added another thing that is very interesting to me and is a um, statement from the OpenAI CEO, Sam Altman, that apparently told the Strike Conference uh, last month. I don't know what this article is from this month, probably it's last month for you. Uh, do you want to read the statement? Yeah, so he said, I think definitely one of the tech industry's worst mistakes in a long time was that everyone could go remote forever. I would say that that experiment is over. I mean, now, yeah. again, right, it depends what you want to read there. Because they say everybody could go full remote forever. So I would invite you to, we're going to link the the, uh, the statement, right? The, the full mm -hmm. uh, article that is linked here. Go read it. And again, judge by yourself. Put like this, since quite harsh statement. It's, it, it's very, it's very strong. Again, right? It's the whole every. It's very sweeping. And I guess that's again, there's two reasons. Easy to be caught up by the press. When you say things like this, you probably want to be heard by the press. It's much easier to sensationalize. It's inflammatory, right? Yes. And it goes. The article goes on, and we see another. A big company, Uber in this case, where the CEO recently ordered remote worker back to the office. Fantastic. One day after laying off more than 1,000 employees. Timing is amazing. Yeah. yeah, do this or you get this. It looks like that, right? When you read it like that, yeah. right? We just laid off 1,000 people and now you get back to the office. One, you're lucky enough to stay. And two, if you don't comply, you, you can join them. Although... If you scroll a bit past there... Yeah, well, you start talking to the people who are actually doing the work as opposed to taking the credit for the work. And so many remote workers contend that working from home is actually just fine in terms of productivity, right? So the numbers seem to back this from most of the studies I've seen that people are working longer and doing more. So in a recent Pew Research survey, 56% of respondents said that working from home helps them get work done, meet their deadlines. And then 37% said it doesn't help, but it doesn't hurt either, right? It's... It's great. And it follows with... Yeah, so we can be productive 
customer obsessed, we can do our good work, we can make a difference and it does not have to be in an office building. This is from um, somebody called Hater, uh, somewhat ironically. Um, yeah. And this is this is off the back of Amazon like mandating people going back into the office, and so Amazon are notori- notoriously customer centric company, and they're literally saying actually we can still live the way that we lived pre pandemic from home. Can we can we say here is not? I mean, I don't want to sponsor the company per se, but can we say that near form is the first testimony that we can be productive, customer obsessed, and we can do our good work, and we can make a difference. And we do it remotely. Yeah, and we've been doing it for 10 years, right? Yes. So this is this is not something new to Nearform. No, we, we are, again, again, we, I can testify based on eight years of experience in Nearform that this is the case. Nearform is full remote, right? We have people all over the world and has been working for 10 years. Right? Okay. From the back to office, we move into ways of working. And the first article is... <laughs> Estimation isn't for everyone. So this is this is a fun one. So the evolution of agility in software development, its impact, and, and what does it mean? Do you want to take this yes, one? Yes, why not? So this is from an engineer manager uh, where he describes his experience on this company. Again, link on the uh, on the show notes if you want to read all of this. We're gonna go through these and link and read the, the the paragraph that we found more interesting. And it describes the way that we're estimating where you go through the stories and someone will throw something like that take a week and then you go haha that's a measure of time and not complexity <laughs> yep and it's interesting right because we love to use points but points translate to complexity it actually mentions that he spent a lot of time and reiterating that they need to use complexity and not time and get familiar with mm-hmm. that and explain to developers what complexity is, what is the right way to define complexity. And they, they spend a lot of time on this process. Yep. So much time that at the end, they ended up with less work than the one needed to complete a sprint. So they didn't even have enough to complete a sprint. <laughs> so it, it, goes, it goes on saying, okay, now, I had estimation on the on the, um, on the stories, but then I have estimation on the tasks, on the ticket. He called it he calls it ticket, right? So he tried a different approach. He went back in time. Yeah, it was over. Was it over six six weeks? Yeah, it's, it's in the articles, probably somewhere in here. Yeah. I don't remember. <clears throat> yeah. But he took, anyway, he took he took a long enough window to get some some decent yes. metrics to establish that. Yeah, six uh, weeks four prior. Four points. See? Yeah, there we go. So, yeah, go so the average ticket was four points, which obviously fits perfectly into the Fibonacci sequence. <laughs> it doesn't, right? So, and but what he did is, is like, you know what? If four was the average, you know what I want to, I'm gonna do? I'm gonna sign four to every ticket, and he added twenty percent mm-hmm. as a buffer there, right? Just to be yeah. sure that the error was minimal. And surprise, surprise, we delivered within one week of my projection. So they were there, right? It worked. Yep. And, it did. and so it keeps going into there, right? Uh, yeah, it keeps going. And it goes into, I couldn't shake the sense that if we just put the time and effort we were spending on estimates into actually completing tasks, we would get a lot more done. And when he suggested this to the team, uh, he learned that they felt the same way. Because nobody wants to be locked in that room for an entire day arguing about story points. We stopped estimating and never looked back. Yep. Although, next paragraph, I consider this shit we both were making where reading this blog post, right? It goes and say, as long as your engineers are skilled at breaking down problems, you can keep the work um, flowing. Yeah, I mean, it's for any team, regardless of agile team, being able to break down problems. I mean, it's hard, right? It is a it is a skill regardless of whether or not you're applying a particular framework or mindset. But it's a, it's a big part of all this assumption, right? Using the average doesn't always work. It depends no. on your team. There is a reason why we do estimation. And by the way, I'm a big believer that in certain teams, you don't need estimation. I'm a big believer on this theory, right? Uh, let me say that up front. But the estimations are there for also other reasons is to understand who should take certain stories. You may have senior people in the team that are more comfortable taking certain stories. They have higher complexity. At the same time, people are just onboarded. They may be senior as well, but they don't have the same context on the uh, on exactly. the job. They may be more comfortable taking something with 
lower complexity as a start. And also, the complexity helps you balance the work. Now everyone wants to take all the, all the complex tickets and then get someone else all the easy one. Or maybe you like challenges and you love to take the complex one, who knows? So they serve a purpose. And he goes on discussing, okay, but how do you then work with this new approach of using average, uh, the new velocity? He gives you a real example. Again, it goes back to, it's not for everyone. Do you want to read this one? <laughs> so, okay, so if you're worried your team isn't reducing its storage well enough, you just got to turn uh, to a concept from Kanban, uh, which I'm probably more of a fan of, uh, which is cycle time. So you track the time you spend on your stories, uh, so in progress and done, and you can tell, but you get a rough idea of how well you're breaking down the tickets, right? So if, you're, if, you're, if your average cycle time of a task increases from, he's used the example, 36 hours to seven uh, to 10 days, use that as a catalyst uh, for a conversation about how you actually go about breaking down your work and making sure you address all these kind of things in your kind of all important team retrospectives, which is another thing that often folks don't do, which we'll touch on, I think, in a little in a little bit as well. Yeah, I think overall what he's saying is they learn how to break down stories if you want to approach these uh, new way, mm. right? Um, surprise, surprise, it's hard. Yes, and in fact, at the end of the article, again, they say, we'll admit that this method isn't for everyone. Shocker. Yep. Right? <laughs> it's the second time. Remote work doesn't work for everyone. Uh, estimation or not estimating doesn't work for everyone. Uh, we are not in a perfect yep. world, right? We, we, there are a yeah, few yeah. things that work for everyone. If your team is still building the muscle for work, breakdown, struggling with process discipline, or is new to agile altogether, and here is something that I don't want to agree with. They say, where have you yep, been? Same. What do you mean, where have you been? Do we really think that everyone... Oh, is... God, isn't everyone doing agile? Yes. I mean, I don't know about you, but every company that I've worked at, agile has been done exactly the same way. Oh, also because there is only one way to do agile, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's mind blowing. I, I've never seen agile done the same way anywhere at all. Um, and where I've seen it kind of uh, kind of rub very closely up against the kind of cargo culting approach to agile, I would say is actually one of the worst ways of working I've experienced. Um, agile became a cult, out right? Agile, yep, yeah, and absolutely. it should be. Agile is actually just some guidelines. Yes. Right, some guidelines. It's, it's supposed to help you get your job done. So Agile works for you or your team, not the other way around, right? You don't do Agile to serve the business needs. You do Agile to serve your needs to deliver value for your business. It's how I'd like to think about it. Yeah, let's let's look. The next tab is actually about the 12 principles of Agile. But in general, from the mm. blog post, what you can what you can learn or take as a learning is that estimation may serve a purpose, but if you have the right team, right scenario, you may not need them, right? You may actually yep. reduce the time you spend estimating or give up the time you spend estimating and focus on doing the work. And it should, may, let's use the may work for you. May, yeah. Um, yep. Save yourself a day, crank out some more tickets. Let's, let's, give, it a, let's give it a look, right? The 12 principles of Agile. Agile has a manifesto, by the way, if you don't know about this. Mm -hmm. uh, all these links, again, in the description. Um, but if you look at Agile, it's interesting because estimation is not mentioned everywhere, right? Sprint are not mm -hmm. mentioned every, anywhere, um, at least on the principle, right? I don't know if the, in the manifesto mm -hmm. there is anything like that. Um, no, not as far as I recall. Yes. So, and if you look at the 12 principles, do you want to read them real quick for the people that are listening? Okay, here we go. So our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software. Welcome changing requirements, even late in development. So this is something I, I frequently rub up against. Um, so agile process can harness change for the customer's competitive advantage. Super important, right? So deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks, <coughs> sprint to a couple of months. Uh, a preference uh, is held for a shorter time can scale. I, can I stop you Doesn't there for a second? Weeks, right? Yes, that's yep. exactly what I want to point out, right? Yeah. We are now saying deploy multiple times a day. Yep. Agile doesn't say that. Agile says from a couple of weeks to a couple of months. If you ask people right now, well, a couple of months may sound crazy. Right? It's too slow, surely, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, like, you should exercise some thought and, and see how your business works, right? Okay, so number four. So business people and developers must work together daily throughout the project. Now, this is super critical for where we're going to go next as well. Uh, so five, build projects around motivated individuals, give them an environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. So stop henpecking your delivery teams to make sure they're delivering the right number of story points in your sprint. It doesn't work. 
Six, the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face-to-face conversation. Interesting. Should we be back in the office? Should we do it all is on it Zoom? This, How yeah, does that play out? Is it this face-to-face in person? It doesn't say in person, right? It, it, it doesn't. It just says face-to-face. Yes. What does that mean? Okay, so seven, working software is a primary measure of progress. Great, excellent. Number eight, Agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. Super key, you don't want to push yourself to burnout. You don't want to be overly stressed. Yes, I understand there are deadlines to be met at certain points in time. We all know about crunch time in video games. It's about planning sensibly. You could argue that perhaps the video games community needs to work on. The long run is more important than the short burst, right? Absolutely. Yeah, sustainability is, is key. Continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. Yep, if you write rubbish code and you're building on a bad foundation, it is going to come back and bite you. Do things once and do them well, or do them well and do them once. 10, simplicity. The art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential. Well, I mean, that's awesome. 11, the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. That is super key. Again, it kind of alludes to the whole being seniority and being, or having seniority and being trusted. And then 12 on the final, at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. Build, measure, learn for your teams as well as your software. Right? This, and we're going to touch on this in a moment. Retrospective, anyone? Retrospective is a key. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so many teams don't be retrospective. As you can see, those are quite generic statements. More or less, it's common sense, I would say, right? There's nothing prescriptive. You shall do this. No, and, and again, it's it's common sense written down. So again, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. I have this on my desktop. Yes, I have a, have a look at these and I read it every now and then because again, we tend to forget those things, right? But those are there. And next up, we go to a pretty unknown company, McKinsey, right? Uh, yeah. The, where, I, <laughs> where, they, where they did an interview with an unknown person. Who knows this guy? Do you know this guy? It's a, Johnny Ive? I mean, the name rings a bell, right? For the people that are listening, again, you don't see the picture, but I mean, trust me, you should know this person. He has done something mm. meaningful for Apple for a long time. Again, he, Dan already said the name. It's called, <laughs> it's called the, the person, but it's Johnny Ive, right? It's the, the famous design yeah. designer that uh, leads some of the most iconic products of Apple. Mm. Um, and do you want to read the title of this interview? So this is, this is, is as you said, it's an interview between uh, some senior McKinsey and, and Mr. Ive, and it's the creative process is fabulously unpredictable. So a great idea cannot be predicted. Yes. So it's, we're not going to yeah, go through the it. interview, but it is, they discuss about the relationship between the, the CEO and the head of design. Mm. Uh, so what can a CEO do to cultivate great design? So what is the impact of a CEO for cultivating great design? But one thing that I want to point out, because I loved this answer, right? Uh, the First of all, the, the interviewer asked uh, about good design conversation and Johnny and I changed to from design to create, right? Yeah, so I wouldn't use the word design. Yes, he was used the. He, oh, I didn't. He used the word creating, right? And so when the the interviewer asked, okay, it's creating not just design. So how do you approach creating processes with a comp with company leaders? Johnny, our friend, went down oh. saying that some of the most creative people I have worked with have been in engineering and in marketing, not just design. Haha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We can be creative. I, I, to be honest, yeah. I don't see myself into that description. But if Johnny said that, I believe it, right? <laughs> Wonderful. But he goes on and said, and mo- uh, some of the most dogmatic people I've met have been in marketing, design, and engineering. Okay, so in general, however, I think that it has to, there has to be an acceptance and engagement with the fact that the creative process is fabulously unpredictable. Um, and it's true, right? Like, you can't, these things just happen. Yes, you, you have to allow, so what, what they say over the interview is that you have to foster, right, the ability yeah. of people to think in a creative way, but yeah. you shouldn't expect that to just happen, right? It's unpredictable. Yeah, if you yeah, I'm going to put you in a room and I want a fabulous idea at the end of the week. It's just not going to happen. Like, it can take time. And he, I mean, let's face it, the guy, the guy has got, uh, he's got to come out a few good ideas, hasn't he? Yes, yes. Now, the, the interview is pretty long. So again, link in the footnote, in the show notes. Yep. Go and read it. 
The last one yep. from ways of working is how else that a scientist team benefit from agile practices. We're back to agile. Do you want to take this one, Dan? Back, yeah. So this is this is the shock and horror, um, or my shock and horror, that uh, it appears that the Dell data science crew have only just discovered that agile practices can actually be used when you're doing data science Arsh. and data engineering. It's, um, I mean, I, I'm a bit surprised. So the, the, the argument they make at the start, or the point they make at the start, is that when you're initially doing your data analytics, you don't really know what's going on. So it's very hard to put in a ticket. I. I actually actually kind of fundamentally disagree with that statement. And and what makes this even more interesting for me, and we've got this bit highlighted, is one of the biggest concerns I've ever had from leadership about data science teams is that they don't know what your plan's going to be. What are you going to deliver in 12 to 18 months? How many things could I learn between um, here that's going on to completely change uh, whatever I, I, you know, I'm gonna tell you now? And it's it just seems so weird that you'd be so disconnected, the business would be so disconnected from the data side of things, like the engineering, the data science, whatever. This should be, this. And what this basically screams to me is that you have no data strategy and you're not executing on a plan. You've got a pool of data, you're going looking for things, but you're not, you've got no framework for um, how to prioritize how you're gonna pull value out of your data. and. It, it just, I find it very, very strange from such a large company. There is there is also a little bit of connection with the estimation, right? To be honest, I don't even know if I'm going to be here between, in 12, 18 months. So it's a little bit crazy that people expect you to predict where you're going to deliver in 18, six months, right? 18, sorry, 12, 18 months, right? You may have a, yeah. an idea of something, that the value that you want to generate in, in 12, 18 mm. months, but I'm not going to write requirements for 12, 18 months. It's not going to work, right? No, no, no. And, you, and, and I mean, you're missing, well, you, what it appears to me they're missing is this whole kind of start small, experiment, validate your hypothesis and iterate. This screams to me, actually, uh, waterfall. Um, hey, agile say that things, or one of the principles say that things can change, right? Things will yep. change. It's not can, things it almost, will change. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I think it's an interesting article to read. Um, fundamentally, for me, shock and horror. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this subtitle says that data science can be a very mysterious practice to stakeholders. Again, and say so again, I think that means that you're doing it wrong. Or you need to learn how to do it properly, right? Yeah, I mean, we can help with that one. Right? Cool. And this is a perfect segue from the, from way of working to data, because we're talking about the data science theme of Dells. What are we going to talk about data in here? Right, so we're going to start with data mesh, and um, so this is something. It's, it's a bit like Marmite, love it or hate it. Um, it's interesting that uh, so Quantum Black uh, are a company that is owned by McKinsey. Um, as we just mentioned their interview with Johnny Ive, and so they're talking about this idea of how data mesh can help organisations basically do what it says it does in the tin, which is split down silos and help you to kind of pull value out of your data in a kind of nice and structured, sensible way. Um, I think the key message here is that, and we talked about this with the FinOps and the Observability podcast with Everything Delivery, is that it's not just I'm going to do data mesh, it's a cultural change. You have to shift the way that you work. It's a big investment and one of the interesting things they do say, I think towards the end of this article, is that they are noticing a number of organizations that are going through kind of transformations um, or, or modernizations is that they use that particular kind of change in strategy to adopt a data mesh uh, approach in order to help elucidate value from data that are at a faster pace. I think it's for like for everything else that we do, if there is no buy-in from a cultural perspective, technology is not going to cut it, right? No. It really doesn't matter. It's and it's 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 top to bottom for data mesh. You need so many different people to coordinate across so many different things. But um, it's, as, as we say, it's for everything, right? Security. You may have all the scanning yep, tools of the world, but if people are not actively looking at the vulnerability and patching, it doesn't work. FinOps. You can have all the tooling that is going to tell you how much you're spending. If but people if people don't think about the spend actively, right? Almost every day, let's say, not going to cut it. Data mesh is the same. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't understand what the principles yeah. of data mesh is, the fact that you're going to own your own data, and so governance is important, and so on, it's not going to cut it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's worth reading. Um, if you like it, go read the book, which we'll link to in the show notes. Next up, right? So, 
Yeah, so uh, we were going to try and avoid this, um, but uh, my life is pretty much all about LLMs at the moment, so I'm going to inflict it on everyone. So a lot of LLM stuff, it's, it's very marmite. It's going to save the world. It's going to doom the world. So this article was I found on, on Hacker News, and it's about has AI poisoned its own world? So this is uh, somebody, so Tracy Donnell, and she is talking around a paper that was published called The Curse of Recursion. And so the kind of point here is that as increasingly data on the internet is generated by LLMs, does that mean that the performance of LLMs is going to degrade? So in the case of the paper, The Curse of Recursion, they mention what so they call something called model collapse. And so this is when models are trained on data that's kind of generated by other models. And they're going to they're gonna go in a spiral running from learning from themselves, right? Is that what the, the, the article says? It, yeah, you keep, yeah, you, you feed it more and it just becomes worse and worse and worse. And actually, this, for some strange reason, this reminded me of um, a kind of British phenomenon, which is bo bovine spongiform encephalopathy, which is uh, it's a prion-related disease, right? Um, and so a prion is a protein that teaches other proteins, teaches a bad word. There you go, narrowing uh, out, out. narrowing out. Yeah, to, to, to misfold, right? And it comes in this cascade reaction. So the more material that these machines learn from that's generated by themselves or other machines, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. The paper that's referenced here, the cursive recursion, is talking about how they can demonstrate that this is not just an issue that's limited to, to LLMs. Okay. I think it's moderately interesting um, in terms of business value, what you get off the back of this. I think you, you simply, if you're doing anything with LLMs, you understand there's more. so much to read. Yes, we, we... You've, got, you've, you've got to keep keep up reading we are, stuff. We are at that stage where you have to learn how this thing works, right? Yeah. If you are investing Absolutely. in these, you have to learn what are the consequences of certain behaviors, what is the situation at the moment, and that's what this helps you with, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun read. It's an interesting read. And as I say, it's not just LLMs. Um, Next one. So yeah, read, read the paper. Right, so then, in, in kind of conflict to this, right? So this is um, one of the interesting kind of discussions I, I'm having with people now is that data engineering is, is dead. I don't think it is. This paper basically talks about having a very high quality data set and utilizing that to build a much, much smaller model that performs relatively well compared to other models of similar kind of size and throughput. The interesting part here is that some of the data that is used to build this model is output from, I think it's GPT 3.5. So, you know, swings and roundabouts here. There's there's a lot of different conflicting opinions and, you know, it's, it's, it's very much an active space. Again, worth checking out. Um, Link in the show notes. As these things get, yeah, as these things get smaller, they become much more interesting. Yes. So we go from there very quickly into so what are the risks, right? So you've built these things; they may be good, they may be bad, um, they may have um, you know the computer form of uh, prion disease. So this is an article in the Harvard Business Review. It's by a couple of folks at Salesforce. So this is Kathy Baxter and you have uh, Schleisinger, who are ethical AI uh, practice folks, and so they talk about. You know, 67% of senior IT folks are prioritizing generative AI. Now, we, we say it on a, a you know, that seems to be what we're seeing as well. 33% uh, have said it's top priority. That seems kind of low, but they're also expressing 79% uh, saying that there is security risk involved and that 73% uh, are worried about biased outcomes, which is kind of like a more traditional machine learning problem. <clears throat> this article talks about kind of five key areas where you can go about limiting uh, uh, the risk that you expose yourself to. So this is kind of accuracy. So make sure your data is safe and secure and verifiable. Uh, you want to try and make sure things are safe so you're not doing uh, so your, your output isn't toxic and you're not being biased, that things are honest. So you're watermarking your outputs, for example. Empowerment is about making, you know, using the AI to actually empower things or empower people, which we'll get to again in a second with the next kind of couple of links. And then finally, sustainability, right? So we, we, know, we know that these things take a vast amount of compute resources to train. Um, it's expensive both in money terms, but also uh, in, in kind of, human resources. Um, it's not to have done so, something think, sooner for the past years, right? We haven't done that I with know, blockchain. Just, we haven't done that with metaverse. And now there is, it looks like yeah. we want to be compute angry, right? We want to use a lot of GPU, a lot of power for whatever this is. It's nuts, yeah. And then you get people that turn around and say, can you please stop using Python and start moving to Rust because it's computationally more effective. And then you read that, you know, so GPT-3 took 1.287 gigawatt hours to, to, to build, right? So that is, the same as 120 US homes for a year. Hey, PNOPs, right? PNOPs. 
Um. <laughs> Man, I mean, it's phenomenal, right? I mean, we've mentioned before, so things like Mosaic, the $200,000, the cost is coming down, sustainability, still a problem, but potentially Hoping less. Hoping across is going to get better. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, they finish up by saying that you know, most folks are going to integrate and not build their own, so really the sustainability is, is a bit more tenuous. Um, the key thing that they they highlight is that it's really important that, that you keep humans in the loop i think this is i think this is still relatively true again if you're um, doing llm uh, even if you're using llm to be honest in this case probably read those things because those are very good things to learn before starting on the journey yeah absolutely I'm not, I'm not going to say that i buy into all of them totally um but they're absolutely worth being aware of that, that's fair so that that's some that's some negatives about llms um so let's have some positives. So uh, this is not from. Uh, it's like we got we got uh, from, <laughs> from totally all over the place. Yes. It's okay. Things are interesting. Oh my god, it's awful. It's going to. It's not the sustainable. World you, it's it's a it's nightmare. Right? It's going to yeah, give yeah. you fake news and so on. Too. Do you want to read the title from this one? Yeah. So why AI will save the world. <laughs> Um, so this is by Mark Anderson of, of um, Anderson Horowitz. It's a long article. There's some interesting stuff in there about um, calling for regulation and who's really benefiting and why people are going to benefit and whether or not they're doing it from uh, having own vested interests like building a moat, you know, calling for regulation uh, at, a, at a Senate hearing so you can build a moat around your company so you don't have competition so you can maximize your value um, through to uh, making this open source, democratizing the use of LLMs. It's very um, kind of a utopian take on things. I, I love the idea. He talks about everyone having a virtual assistant and things like this. And I do so hope this is something that happens. He also talks about how uh, people like to get obsessed with uh, the kind of doom that these things are going to bring, so things like the Industrial Revolution. And in fact, he even points out that this isn't the first time we've seen this for AI. I think it's even like the third time we've seen AI is going to destroy the world. It's a good read. Go go check it out. Since, since we and said that... we were not going to throw in last minute link, I'm going to throw in a last minute link, okay? You're going to read the title here. Sorry, this is completely so, unscripted. I'm sorry for this. Yeah, Dan, but... it's a totally, totally got me here. Right. So this is the EU AI Act. So this is the first regulation on artificial intelligence. So the EU paving the way. So this is uh, the use of the uh, of artificial intelligence in the EU will be regulated by the Act. So it's the world's first comprehensive AI law. This is kind of interesting, right? Because off the back of the, I think it was the, was it the American House or Senate, I can't remember which group it was, hearing with Sam Altman, they were basically saying we've got to get there first to do the regulation. Now you're gonna you're gonna hear people around the world saying EU is only good at regulating things, not building things. Mm. I don't want to go into that, right? I don't care about that. I just you don't want to get political. No, no. <laughs> and I just found interesting that you say that it's not the first time that we hear that AI may destroy the world or it's dangerous and so on. But then that made me realize that it's the first time that we create an AI act, right? So yeah. times are different. Yeah. No, this is something I, I need to read up on, and I, and I haven't yet. Um, similar, similar. That's why it's not in the in the. Uh, also, because it's an interesting read, but it takes a lot to understand what's actually what's actually in the act, right? And sorry for throwing oh. this in the last minute, but I think it was relevant for the first uh, for the previous. No, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna put it in ChatGPT to generate a, a summary for me later. And it's so gonna just lie to you, and you're gonna spend a lot. <laughs> it's all okay, Dan. Yeah, it's not gonna you're be fine. sustainable at all, right? Doing that. Okay, how do we close uh, it? Last but not least, so this is this is I, I I've got to say I've watched this talk far far too many times. I have sent it to too many people in the company. Uh, so it's a talk by Sal Khan, and so this is this is the guy who's behind Khan Academy, which I I genuinely think is one of the best things to happen on the internet. Full stop. Um, so he is giving a talk about how how AI could save the world, or sorry, save the world, save education rather than destroy it. I, I just think everyone should be forced to watch this talk. It resonates with me on so many levels from, from making uh, education accessible to everyone. You know, you can get that kind of private tuition that previously only incredibly wealthy could afford, afford or like, you know, the, the kind of private school set. Do you want to go into okay. why they th we think it may destroy the education, why people think it may destroy the education? Yeah, yeah so no, there's going to be no, nothing original. Um, so so kids now, they're going to get assigned an essay and they're just going to go to um, uh, you know, ChatGPT and say, ChatGPT, this is my essay title, write the text for me. And then they might kind of... Honestly, not just kids. It. It, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a risky strategy, Cotton. But yeah, look, I, look, watch the video, right? Because here we're going to learn absolutely. how AI yeah, could save education.
I mean, the thing that I so I, I quite like is I'm a, I'm a bit of a fan of um, like the little schema books, um, which take a very Socratic approach to education. I think it works for me particularly well. They have created a bot uh, in Khan Academy, so Carmigo, that interacts with students this way. I just, I just think it's super wonderful. I'm a you know it reminds me very much of. Um, Neil Stevens' uh, Diamond Age book, uh, which I thoroughly recommend anyone go and read. It's just so so positive. I think uh, Salkan is he's just a great presenter, um, and it's it's just wonderfully positive. All of those bad things that people say about Gen AI, he has he has totally swung me the other way. He ends with a message that this could be used uh, by the good guys, it could be used by the bad guys. The responsibility falls on all of us to work together to make sure this turns out nicely for everyone. Um, yeah. Okay, wouldn't want that. Uh, so yeah. let's let's recap what we've done today. So uh, if you've been following, we discussed three main topics. Back to the office, where we started with the DHH and there was stating that hybrid is actually the worst. You want to go back to the office or embrace remote. Uh, we, this, we, we, we start with a disclaimer that we both work remotely, so we are maybe a little bit biased. We went through reading the old news about Meta, about uh, different companies, all dictating people to get back to the office. And we discussed the pros and cons of this, right? How people <laughs> learned that working remotely gave them a better life-work balance or work-life balance, uh, and how much the commute may be detrimental, how companies may not benefit from this because they reduce the pool of people they can hire, only from the people around the office, and so on. All the links are in the description. We ended with Sam Holtman saying, again, CEO of OpenAI, because AI is everywhere right now, stating that the experiment is over. It was working remotely, it was just an experiment. Experiment is over, back to the office. And it was a mistake, sorry. And it was a mistake. And then we transition into we are working, where there is an article questioning the value of estimation, right? Estimating stories. Mm -hmm. Then we went through the 12 principles of Agile, and Dan did a great job reading through the 12 principles in a short amount of time. Thank you for that. Okay. We, we, we looked at an interview that McKinsey did with uh, Johnny Ive, and then how Dell's data science team benefited from Agile practices. Mm-hmm. And then we went into the ML. Done? Yep, so we covered off data mesh and how it's an organizational change that really fits alongside things like FinOps and operability. You really have to work together as a business to make this happen, but the and the net result pays off in dividends. We then moved to LLMs, so quickly talking about uh, how potentially feeding LLMs, output from LLMs may result in some sort of machine version of bovine spongiform uh, encephalopathy or uh, BCJD if you're into your science. We then talk about how having curated small data sets may be beneficial to actually building small yet effective models, uh, again, potentially using uh, model generated output as input. We talk briefly about potential risks about generative AI. This is you know, five things to kind of be aware of and make sure you cover off uh, if you're going to be building, working or integrating LLM into your product. Yeah, there was a curiosity, and then, safety, honesty, empowerment and sustainability, um, right? Sustainability, yep, that's yep, the key. And then we finish up with a couple of positives. So a, a very uh, long, totally worth reading uh, summary of why AI will save the world uh, before briefly rounding out with my favorite talk on the internet um, from South Khan about how AI could save, not destroy education. And that wraps up today Digital Pulse episode. Thanks a lot for listening. As usual, you can find us on everything.delivery. Um, you can find us on the usual social medias, Twitter, LinkedIn, Discord, and so on. And we'll see you next time in two weeks. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening or watching. Bye. Bye.